You're listening to a podcast from Hicksville Cornerstone Church. For more information about the church, visit us at hickscc.org. That's H-I-X-C-C.org. Thanks for listening. I'm turning real quick into my former pastor, Patrick, um, when it comes to my Lord of the Rings analogies. Um, I apologize. Um, You all would like him, know that. Uh, But I'm going to go back uh, to uh, Mordor and to Middle Earth today to begin my sermon. In Tolkien's epic tale, Frodo undertakes the quest to take the Ring of Power through the land of the shadow and deposit it in the mountain of Mordor in order to defeat the evil Sauron. There, that's the whole synopsis of the three books, okay? If you've never read it, there you go. Frodo, however, does not embark on this quest alone. He has Sam, Samwise Ganji. And as Frodo says at the end of the epoch, he would have never completed his journey without Sam. Well, what did Sam do throughout his quest? He did three things. First, he constantly reminded Frodo of their objective. They have to destroy the ring. So no matter what side quest the journey would take them, Sam was always there to remind them that this is the task that has been set before us. The second thing that Sam did is he encouraged Frodo, or to use the biblical language that we'll see today here in the text, that he would stir up Frodo. When times were tough, when the outcomes looked bleak, when hope was nearly lost, he encouraged them to move forward. And lastly, and most beautifully, (coughs) the last thing that Sam did was when times were so difficult that Frodo could not continue, he actually put Frodo on his shoulders and carried him up the mountain. We're going to see all those things within the text of Scripture today. The call to be reminded of the confession that we are to hold to as true, the encouragement that we are to give to one another, and lastly, the Savior that when the journey is too difficult, willingly puts us on his shoulders and moves us towards the goal. We've come to the part of the book of Hebrews that there's some pretty clear and practical applications that are going to be before us. Most theologians agree that the book of Hebrews was first a sermon and later a book. So imagine it like a a sermon you would receive on a Sunday where we've now gotten to the application part of the message. And this is what we find here. This portion of the book reminds us that we have a Sam on our adventure through this land of darkness that we live in. And that we are called to be a Sam to one another. There is also emphasis on the body of Christ that I do not want us to miss within the text of scripture today. So please open the text to Hebrews 10. We will start at verse 19 and go to 25. Please stand with me. I want us to take special notice of the let us phrases within the text, for those are the key moments that will move us throughout the sermon this morning. Starting at verse 19. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places 
by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The grass withers and the flower fades, and the word of God stand forever. Please be seated. Father God, we invite you to be here. Without your presence, my words are nothing more than a noisy gong. So Lord, I ask that you would pierce our hearts this morning, that the text of scripture would be unleashed, that the word of God would work its power that you have so promised. And Lord, meet us in the midst of the shadow, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our doubt. And may we cling to the one who is faithful. In your son's name I pray. Amen. If anyone ever asks you what the main theme of the Bible is, I want to give you a response that you can use. And then I want to back it up with scripture. Because it's all over the place. It's really hard to miss if you read your Bible through. Hebrews 8.10 has already quoted the section in Jeremiah 31.33. We read it this morning in our Old Testament reading. And here is what I argue, um, many argue, is the main theme of scripture. Here it is, Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You see, this concept is over all the text of scripture. From the very beginning, Genesis 17, 8. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Exodus 29, 45. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. Zechariah 8, 8. And I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And finally, at the end of all things, Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Here's the big Point. Here is a big point of the Bible. God desires to be with us. God desires to be with us. If you're following along in your um, bulletin this morning, you may have noticed a big boo-boo. I forgot to put in some fill-in-the-blanks. So the best way to do that when your pastor is over-caffeinated on a Friday is to circle the word that is most important to you. So that's how you can deal with that. So here's the big important note of the Bible. God desires to be with us. 
God desires to be with us. It seems a statement too good to be true. The God of the universe desires to be with you and with me, to walk with us, to commune with us, to have a relationship with us, to be known and to know. But it is also, if we, if we look at the text of scripture, a very scary place to be. Remember the story of Isaiah as he's before the presence of God. Remember the story of Moses as he sees the burning bush. Remember the story of John as he meets his friend Jesus in Revelation. In all those moments, the people of God, when they come face to face with the living God, are undone. So how can we do it? How can we approach the presence of a holy God? That's the question before us this morning. And the text gives us a profound answer with confidence. With confidence. That's what verse 19 says. Are we to be confident in our own righteousness, our own holiness? Do we boast in how moral we live, on how much we give to charity or the church, of how many of the Ten Commandments we keep? No. We'll call the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke 18, 9 through 11. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted, and will get to approach the throne of grace with confidence. We can be confident as we acknowledge our sin before the Lord. We can be confident as we acknowledge our sin before the Lord and acknowledge our Savior before the Lord. It is not of our own works that we can approach the throne of God with confidence, but it's by the blood of Jesus that we can. Verses 19 through 22 summarize what Jesus has done for us. Look at the text as we move along. The holy place referenced in verse 19 is heaven itself. And the curtain that is torn was both a literal curtain on earth and a spiritual curtain in heaven. Matthew 27, 51 tells us that when Christ died at Calvary, the curtain that blocked off the intersection of the temple in Jerusalem was cut in two. This was an earthly symbol of a heavenly reality. For on earth, the need for the most holy place was done away with. God had redeemed his people by the blood sacrifice of his son. And the heavenly reality was that Christ would indeed be able to say to the thief on the cross next to him, Today, you will be with me in paradise. It was finished, not by our own power but by that of Jesus. And then verse 20 speaks of a new and living way. What is he saying here? The new way is the new covenant that we've talked about in the weeks past. 
And the living way refers to a living Savior. We don't have a dead one. He is risen. Verse 21 speaks of a great high priest and a house of God. I hope at this point that you know who the great high priest is. We've talked about it for several weeks now. It's, it's Jesus himself. Jesus is the great high priest. The house of God referred to here, however, is not the temple in Jerusalem, which many might assume. Church, you are the house of God. You are the house of God. Wherever God's people are, that's where God's house is. And Christ is in charge of that house. Christ has in charge of that house. Geography and physical buildings no longer matter under the new covenant. You can worship where God wherever you are. Now, think about this, Christian. Stay with me. I know for many of you, this is just a concept that you've grown up with your whole entire life. But for the first century Jew, this is a brand new idea. If you're Jewish, you have one place that you need to worship. That's the temple in Jerusalem. And you have one person that goes before you once a year to offer a sacrifice for sin. And when she enters the Holy Holies, in which the presence of God is poured out, in which the sacrifice that points to Jesus is put forth, it had to be done in one place. But now under the new covenant, you're it. You are the sacred space in which the Lord dwells. It's with you. You can take it anywhere. The sprinkling of the blood, the washing of the priest by the water. Back then, sacred space has a boundary and a requirement to enter. Look, I'm not saying in the Old Testament God did not operate outside that boundary. But there was something very real and very set apart about the inner sanctuary of the temple. It was sacred. Now, what's the current implication of this? The concept of the temple. The concept of being a house of God. If you are in Christ, your body has been washed by the blood of the Lamb. You can draw near to God as the house of God because you are now sacred space. You are now sacred space. Our body is a sacred space. And everywhere sacred space goes, the presence of God has the potential to impact the lives around it. This is what makes your witness so strong in the world. Not because you keep the law, but because the law has been kept on your behalf. And as you walk in the spirit, it will naturally pour out to those that you interact with. And that is why we need to take seriously what we do with our bodies. What we put in them. What we do with them. 1 Corinthians 6 reminds us of the purity we are supposed to pursue with our bodies. Because there is a very sacred aspect to them. Turn with me. Well, you don't have to turn there. It's on the screen. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. Flee from sexual immorality. Why? Just because it's part of the law? Just because it's a bad thing to do? No. It tells us something much more profound. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 
Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In many cultures around the world, there was no concept of the body as sacred space. And you could argue that it started long ago, but at least from the sexual revolution on in this country, we began to no longer see the body as sacred, but we began to treat it as profane. What you do with your body can and does very much affect your soul. Your body and soul are not opposing forces at work within each other. That Venn diagram has a great deal of crossover. Too often, we treat our bodies and sex like a playground. I posed this question to many dear friends who treat their bodies as such in the past. Is their body designed to be more of a temple or a playground? And for some reason, they rush to answer that question because they know the implications by answering it, well, it's a playground. When they say that, especially in the last four or five years, it's very easy for me to respond with this question. Have we learned nothing from the Me Too movement? Nothing. When I have to counsel guys and girls who have gone through sexual trauma or have gone through sexual regret, I can promise you it is no boo-boo from a swing set. But it is temple desecration that they deal with. We need not treat our bodies and the stuff that we put it through like it's just some band-aid's going to fix it. It's because we don't see our bodies as sacred. Church, we need to recover a proper theology of the body as sacred space. If we want to be a witness in the world, this is one of those theological points that we must recover. For it is because our bodies and our souls are now sacred space, back to the big picture, that we can draw near to God. And God can draw near to us, which is the whole point of the gospel. It's the whole point of the rescue mission for God to be with his people. And as his people, verse 22, is key. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil consciousness and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's go through this. A true heart is one that walks in truth. It's one that understands the story of reality. What's the story of reality? That Christ died to save sinners. And when we repent and believe, we become something greater than we were before. We become a new creation. We become sacred space. We see this concept in one of my favorite stories in the scriptures in John 4. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, which would have been a scandal if it was modern day context. If the paparazzi got wind of it, Jesus would have been canceled by the religious leaders of the day. And what does the woman at the well say to Jesus when it comes to worship? Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, 
is the place where people ought to worship. She knows that Jesus believes that the temple is sacred space to worship. And I want you to notice Jesus' response here. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. There's that word again. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God's spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The spirit of God would dwell in a new temple. You and I. And we would walk with true hearts. And that would supernaturally lead to assurance of faith. Look at verse 22 again. Full assurance of faith. We're going to talk about such an important promise and doctrine next week as we continue this section. But as indwellers of the Holy Spirit, if you are united to Christ, you can have confidence in the work of Jesus on your behalf. And that is where everything up until this point of Hebrews is led. And immediately after this line, we get another let us verse. So let's continue with this next verse in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast. The author of the text exhorts you to hold fast. Hold fast to what? The confession of our hope without wavering. Now, I know many of you, I know many of your testimonies, and I know many of you have come from a high church background, so you might have a better, robust vocabulary when it comes to this portion of Christianity. But for many of us, when we see the word confession, we think of you and I in a box talking to one another, right? Praying over some beads. What does the author mean to here? What's he talking about? Confession refers to the content of what we believe. Confession refers to the content of what we believe. And we must not waver for what we know to be true. Does this mean that we believe things blindly? By no means. But it does mean that you need to know what you believe and why. How else are we going to represent Jesus to a broken world? 1 Peter 3.15 encourages us to do this. But in your hearts, Honor Christ as Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason that the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect. Dr. Dr. Michael Kruger reminds us of, of this in his statement in his commentary. In our modern day, we are bombarded with every reason to give up what we believe. People think Christianity is ridiculous or offensive or crazy. People attack core Christian truths on the internet and in books. We need to be careful to hold on because we are under great temptation to drift away. Of course, we do sometimes doubt the truth of what we believe, but I think that's why our author adds this little phrase to the end of verse 23. For he who promised is faithful. Remember, 
God is trustworthy in what he promised. His word will prove true in the end. That is the motivation for our perseverance. Christian, that should give us great hope. Our holding fast does not solely rely on our own power. Christ himself holds you, for he who promised is faithful. We can trust the Lord of the promises, John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The Gettys have this marvelous song that I sing in my heart regularly called, He Will Hold Me Fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. I need that song throughout the weeks. Now if Christ is doing the heavy lifting, does that mean we get to absolve ourselves from any active obedience? Again, no. We talk about this over and over again throughout this book. It is because of Christ's active work on our behalf that we too are active in our pursuit of Christ, in our pursuit of Christ's body. What do I mean by that? Let's look at the next verse, Hebrews 10, 21, 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to loving good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day of the Lord drawing near. It's another let us consider. Let us consider one another. Verses 24 through 25. I want you to look at the verbs within this section. This is a good habit. If you're wondering what is this section of scripture telling me, a really good habit to get in is to just circle the verbs. Circle the verbs. It gives me a good insight of what is this passage saying. So in your Bible study time, I would get into that habit, especially if you have a section of scripture that you're wondering, how does this speak to me? Let's look at the first verb. Consider. Consider. Jesus uses this phrase in the parables. You might recall, consider the ravens, which I always thought would be a great band name. Don't any of you take that, okay? It's a call to take seriously what he's about to say. Consider this. Next verb, stir up. Look, some of you got cattle. You get this. You got to move the cattle in the barn. You got to stir them up because their, their head's in the sand, their, their head's on the grass. They are thinking about a hundred different things. You got to stir up the cattle. It's the same way with sheep. Any of you have ever been a shepherd? You know this. Sheep are dumb. I take that back. They're stupid. Okay? You got to stir up the sheep to get them to move places. Right? I think this is also most clear for every sports fan in the audience, right? Why is home field advantage an actual reality in sports? Is it the familiarity with the grass that they play on? Maybe. Is it the fact that they got to sleep in their own beds the night before? I think that contributes. But what we all know, and we have, some of us, many of us have been in these environments, when the crowd is stirring up the team 
to feats that they would have never considered possible before the game began that moves them, that stirs them up to action. I love watching pre-game uh, stirrups by team captains in the NFL. It's awesome. They stir up one another to feats of strength. And this is something that like, gives them immediate benefit. A touchdown, a clutch three-pointer, a, a home run in the bottom of the ninth. Those are things that give them immediate benefit as they stir up one another. How much more, church, do we need it in the Christian life when many of the rewards that we will receive, we will not get until we're dead? What do we stir up one another to? A touchdown? We stir up one another to suffer, to sacrifice, to love our neighbor after we've met the neighbors, which is much harder. <laughs> to love our enemies. That's what we're stirring up one another to. It's clear from this passage, right? And from the ministry of Jesus. That there are no Lone Ranger Christians. None. We are to stir up one another to love and good works in which we are both to engage in collectively. And one of the main ways to make sure there are no Lone Ranger Christians is to look at the next verb in the sentence. Meet together. This is such a beautiful way to stir up the body of Christ. When I come here, I know I look like I got a lot of energy and happiness on Sunday morning. I'm a parent with four children under eight. I'm tired. I've dealt with many of the stuff that you are going through in your life over the course of the week. Preaching sermons after preaching two funerals in a week is hard. And that's my stuff. Y'all bring baggage I wouldn't even, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. But we come into this space, drowning in personal sorrow, coming broken, coming hurting. And when I come feeling alone in a room full of others, and you get to sing in my ear, great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. When you sing that in my ear and you remind me of the faithfulness of God, we stir up one another to go back to the shadows of this life and meet it with the light. Thank you for doing that for me and for doing that for one another. We stir one another up. But it's not just in our songs. When, when the word of God washes over us, when we lift up others in prayer, uh, who are others who are going through hardships in life who we would never imagine, when the word of God is proclaimed to my heart, and then we talk about it later and digest it throughout the week. That's stirring one another up. That's displaying love. To be an active participant in worship. 
not just someone present. This isn't a concert or a TED talk, right? To be an active participant in the worship service feeds your body, your individual temple, and feeds your body, the corporate temple. What am I talking about? Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We used this phrase earlier in the message, but it has a profoundly different meaning as we come to it again at the end. Our body is sacred space. Your church body is a sacred space. And as we stir up one another to love and good works, as we meet together, as we encourage one another, we fulfill what is called to be the body of Christ. We actually complete one another. We speak to the soul of one another as we worship as a body of believers. When the church functions as the church, fulfilling the verb's presence within the text of scripture today, we are a blessing to those around us and to our own bodies. That's what I want you to do. I want everyone to take your hand, right or left hand, I don't care who you are. If you're a Benjamite, that's fine, okay? Put your hand on your chest. Breathe in. Breathe out. Repeat after me. This is my body. This is my body. This is a temple. This is a temple. Now look to your left, look to your right. If you like them, you can put your hand on them. Hold their hand. Just look at your right and left. Repeat after me. This is my body. This is a temple. We are one body. Indwelt by the Holy Spirit as a temple of God. And we have the great high priest who is over the house. He guides our actions, empowers us to encourage one another in a broken world. And as we look towards the world to come, which is what the author leaves us with at the end of the verse, Hebrews 10, 25b. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. If you notice the day is capitalized, there's a reason that is. The day referred to here is the day of the Lord's return. When every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I follow one guy on Twitter, not just one, but there's one guy I follow on Twitter, and when I happen to get on Twitter, he posts the same thing every day. It's of great encouragement to me, great encouragement to me. He says just this, Christian, you're one day closer to heaven. It's a good reminder. When our bodies will be free from sin, individual and corporate, and we get to worship and live life on a new heaven and a new earth where there are no thieves, no mothballs, no rust, where we will have a renewed body, for we will be a renewed body. And the culmination of the story of God will be played out for all eternity. What's the story? You might have heard it from the beginning. For I will be for they will be my people, and he will be my God. He will be with us, Emmanuel, fully and forever. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads with me.